John chapter 7, verses 1 through 24, if you'd like to open your Bible there or navigate on your electronic device so you can follow along. John chapter 7. The topic, Jesus' brothers do not believe he is God in human flesh dwelling among them. The title of our message, He Ain't Heavenly, He's Our Brother. Have a word of prayer. Father, we're glad to be here. Our hearts are glad. We read that in the Psalms many times, Lord. Even though we've brought in many troubles and trials, sufferings and afflictions, many situations, Lord, that we can't see our way out of uh, in our own lives and in the lives of others that we love, our hearts are made glad by the grace of God, by your provision for us, by the sufficiency of your love for us, and uh, by the Holy Spirit you provide for us, Lord, and who indwells us and makes it powerful enough to, to live the Christian life. And so, Lord, I pray that we would have a, a listening ear and that individually and corporately we would hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to our church today. We thank you. We praise you. We do it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. All I really need to know, I learned on Saturday mornings watching the adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle. I learned history from Mr. Peabody. I was exposed to the classics from Fractured Fairy Tales. Dudley Do-Right of the Mounties provided a moral compass and taught me that character counts. Critical thinking was the purview of Aesop's fables. I later learned that Aesop was a 6th century Greek storyteller. His fables would illustrate a wise saying. For example, the following is attributed to him. Beware that you do not lose the substance by grasping at the shadow. We have no way of knowing if Aesop plagiarized the Apostle Paul's first century letter to the church in Colossae. Paul wrote, Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Shadow and substance are illustrated during the only recorded conversation between Jesus and his brothers. The brothers were rushing out the door to attend the annual Feast of Tabernacles. They would join the other pilgrims and erect makeshift shelters, camping outdoors for a week, to remember the exodus from Egypt and the subsequent 40 years of wandering in the desert. God camped with them in the wilderness. His glory was in the Ark of the Covenant that was housed in the portable tent sanctuary called the Tabernacle. God tabernacled with Israel. In the opening chapter of the Gospel of John, we were told, this is from verse 14 of chapter 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This phrase, dwelt among us, can be translated tabernacled among us. The brothers of Jesus and the nation of Israel were intent on observing a feast, commemorating God tabernacling with them, when at the same time God was tabernacling with them in the person of Jesus Christ. One was a shadow, one was the substance, and at least for now, the people preferred the shadow. The Feast of Tabernacles, all the feasts, were shadows prefiguring the substance who was Jesus. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, the shadows diminish Jesus, whereas number two, Jesus dispels the shadows. Let's take a look in verses 1 through 10 on how the shadows diminish Jesus. At the end of the Michael Mann crime story, Heat, cop Al Pacino is chasing crook Robert De Niro, 
in a gun battle in a field at night between runways at LAX. De Niro positions himself behind a barrier so he can ambush uh, Pacino and shoot him. But suddenly the runway lights come on, causing De Niro to cast a shadow, alerting Pacino, who then shoots him dead. He didn't shoot the shadow. The shadow revealed the substance. We don't want to mistake shadows for substance in spiritual things and in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And I hope to show you at least that there are people who do that, and we have a tendency to do that. So let's pick it up in verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Jesus was no coward, but he followed a meticulous plan and schedule by his father's doing. It was too soon for him to be killed, so he remained in Galilee. He used the time to travel around ministering to folks. His calling was the cross, and his mind was always set on that, but it never kept him from serving all along the way to Calvary. Stay busy serving the Lord or get busy serving the Lord. We recommend that you exhaust yourself serving the Lord. I know it's become popular over the last few years for uh, people to become whiny, uh, is the way we put it here. But to be nice, I'll say to be a little bit more sensitive. And everybody's on sabbatical. Everybody needs a sabbatical because they're so burned out serving the Lord. Uh, they would never say that to the Apostle Paul. He'll cut you. or something. I mean, it, it'd, be, it'd be rough, man, with what he'd been through. And so get, get busy. Serve the Lord. The Lord said, I am coming quickly in the book of the Revelation. I am coming quickly. He didn't say soon or I'm almost say quickly means when he comes, it's going to just happen at the rapture. And we want to be ready for that serving him. Now, the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. The Feast of Tabernacles, also called Succoth, the Hebrew word for booths or tents or shelters. It coincided with the harvest and was intended to be a joyful seven days of national night out. His brothers therefore said to him, verse 3, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Jesus had brothers and sisters. They're listed in Mark chapter 6, verse 3. His younger brothers were James, Joseph, or probably Joseph, Judas, and Simon. I guess they ran out of J names for the boys. You know, people do that, right? That's cool. They named their kids with all the same name. George Foreman, all of his kids, and they had George as a middle name. Great. His brothers sounded like political pundits or ad men with their advice. They told Jesus he needed better promotion. Maybe he should hire a manager, uh, and, and this is how he would reveal himself. And notice they say, to your disciples, making it clear that they are not his disciples, and they don't really want to have anything to do with that. The world has its methods and will always try to impose them upon the church. We must exercise discernment not to fall into the trap of thinking that a spiritual end justifies a worldly or a carnal means. Uh, you know, we want to, people to do better. We want them to grow in their faith in the Lord. We want all kinds of things to happen that are good in and of themselves. But sometimes we go about it with trickery or manipulation, and that end doesn't justify the means. We want to get there spiritually and be able to give glory to God. Verse 5, for even his brothers did not believe in him. 
Uh, this little section here about Jesus and his brothers and their conversation could be five or six studies all by itself. Jesus had been living with these men for over 30 years. He was big brother Jesus, born first to Mary, and then she had other children from Joseph. Uh, and so they had the same mother, different fathers, very different fathers. And, and Jesus' big brother had been with them over 30 years. They did not believe he was God in human flesh, tabernacling among them. It's part of what makes this exchange an intriguing substance shadow issue. Now, we're not given much detail about Jesus' life before he begins his ministry. Uh, and, and when you're watching, Easter just passed, but uh, leading up to Easter each year, they have all these specials about the real Jesus or search for Jesus on you know, PBS and all those educational channels. And they always have all these stories about Jesus when he was a youth and what he did. The Bible says uh, that his family fled into Egypt when he, was, uh, when he was young. The Magi brought him gifts. Then we see him again at 12 years old. And then we see him again in the Gospels as an adult starting his ministry. And so we, we don't know what filled those years. And anybody who suggests they know is not telling the truth. But I think it's safe to assume that he was unique. Think about how being sinless might have impacted family life. Just, I know it's impossible to think. Jesus was sinless his entire life. He never committed a sin, never did anything wrong, was always right. How would that impact family life? Did his brothers ever get frustrated and say to Jesus, you think you're so perfect, don't you? <laughs> did they try to get Jesus to do something wrong? Try to kind of, you know, wear him down. Did they blame him for things that he did not do? Come on. You know how siblings can be. Think of your own siblings and the warfare that you had growing up. I know my house was insane. I should have been delivered by CPS years before I was able to move. But one of the, one of the key moments in my life, you don't mind me sharing, right? Sure. Uh, one of the key moments in my life, eighth grade, I blame, uh, I don't know who I blame at this point, but I get, I get caught with marijuana. It's like the end of the world in my family. And so every night for years, we'd sit at dinner, and my, my two older brothers were still living at home at the time, and invariably they would bring something up. You know, so that, that's a marijuana there, isn't it? No, it's not marijuana. It's, you know. And they keep at it. My dad was the kind of guy, great guy. He would listen to all this stuff, and, and then all of a sudden he would just explode about it. You know, I mean, and they, they would just, they, my brothers knew how to needle my dad so that he would just go off, you know, and uh, it was, it was crazy around my house. When I was younger, my brother Richard, who I love, I was like 10 years younger than him, and so he didn't want to play with me, and so my mom would make him play with me, and so I remember the one time he played with me, he said, let's throw some football around, all right, he chucked that thing on a spiral right into my chest, and I was knocked out for days, it seemed like, but I did lose my bread. So I, anyway, so Jesus, the absolutely perfect son and brother, perfect in every way, the perfect human being, what do you think that does to a family? I don't know if you, you might even have to call that a dysfunctional family, right? I mean, who can live with a perfect person? Then Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. 
His brothers could come and go as they please. They could attend the feast or not attend the feast. They were not rocking the proverbial boat. Jesus was following a a prescribed course that brought him into conflict with the world. A.W. Tozer said, Wherever I am, whatever I am doing, I hope and pray to God that I will have the courage to stand up for the real Jesus of the New Testament, regardless of who I offend. And so Jesus' brothers, not his disciples, didn't believe in him. They were offending no one. They were perfectly content with the Judaism of the first century and they rejected their brother's claims, uh, even in light of his miracles and his many signs and wonders. The works of the world are evil, it says here in verse 7. Now, we're being nuked in a campaign to obliterate biblical marriage, which includes, among other things, God's roles for men and women, God's gift of sexuality, and his plan for the home to be the building block of a righteous society. All of the crazy stuff that we hear and everybody's arguing about, it really is an attack on uh, Genesis chapters, you know, 2, where God sets everything up and says, this is the way it's going to be. A guy is going to marry a girl. They're going to stay married for life. Uh, they're going to be monogamous and heterosexual. Uh, they're going to have a, a great time in their marriage. They're going to produce kids who they grow up in the Lord. It's going to be a home and a society. And now everybody's, again, people who, uh, you know, it's worked pretty well for like several thousand years, right? I mean, you know, it's not perfect. It's not a perfect system because we're an imperfect race. But this kind of family life and all, that's worked for a long time. Now people are coming out who are like 12 years old, it seems like, in their intellect, saying, oh, no, there's, there's no male, there's no female. We need to teach your kids at the youngest possible age about these things. And so it's like a nuclear attack on the nuclear family, right? It's just insane. The Apostle Paul says Satan causes spiritual blindness. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan blinds, and then he binds, in the sense that he influences non-believers to do his will. A kind of spiritual Stockholm syndrome sets in, where where people are serving the devil without even knowing it. They're not possessed. I'm not talking about demon possession. It's just they're being influenced by him to do his will. No earthly argument, no human wisdom, not common sense can open blinded spiritual eyes and set free bound captives. Our response is the gospel. Now notice in this what I read from 2 Corinthians. It says the devil wants to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. And so his tactic, the devil's tactic to keep people held in captive and and do his will is to not expose them to the gospel, to see that they're not exposed to the gospel. He doesn't care whatever else you want to tell people to try and get them to change their mind because he has blinded them and they're loyal to him. But he wants to minimize the gospel. And so spiritual problem, spiritual solution. God is the one who can open blind eyes and set captives free. And so we must stick to the gospel. We can do other things. We can talk about other things and pray about other things and encourage other things, but we can't leave the gospel behind. The gospel is the number one thing that is going to open up blinded eyes. If you were saved later in life like I was, you know what I'm talking about. You had a moment when you saw things spiritually that you had never seen before because the gospel was brought to you in some capacity. Spiritual problem, spiritual solution. 
Verse 8, you go up to this feast, I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. Jesus refers to this feast. Sounds like he was referring to at least two different feasts. One commentator offers this insightful analysis. He says, what makes this statement remarkable is that the implied or other feast is the same feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. The contrast Jesus makes suggests that there is a distinction between the annual Feast of Tabernacles and the true tabernacle, Jesus himself. Verse 10, but when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. Jesus didn't deceive his brothers. He wasn't lying to them or trying to ditch them. D.A. Carson explains, he is not going to the feast when they say he should. The counsel of the wicked could not be permitted to set his agenda. Sabbatarians are the easiest example of diminishing Jesus by living in the shadows. Any of those groups that keep the Saturday Sabbath. We automatically think of Adventists, but there are Seventh-day Baptists, there are Seventh-day uh, folk in a lot of different denominations who feel like we should be keeping the fourth commandment by observing Saturday Sabbath. Uh, they in, observe it in conformity to the fourth commandment. Jesus is our Sabbath rest every day. He has fulfilled that. The Sabbath is a shadow of what Jesus is the substance. If you go back to the shadow, you end up becoming a Pharisee. It's as simple as that. Because that's what happened. They, they wanted to live in that shadow, and they opposed Jesus when he was there, and uh, eventually living, uh, trying to keep the Sabbath in a way other than spiritually by walking with Jesus Christ leads you into a kind of legalistic Phariseeism where you have rules and rights and regulations and all these things, and it builds distance between you and the Lord. Peter Pan's is the most famous shadow of all. It seems to have a life of its own, and it is mischievous. As long as we remain in our current unredeemed bodies, we will be drawn to shadows. Watch out for mischievous shadows. The Apostle Paul named some of them, saying, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy or empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Jesus. Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substances of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels. Now, there's a lot there uh, to go into, but the basic idea he mentions, for example, Sabbaths and food and drink, uh, that's all the idea that you have to eat certain foods, you can't eat other foods, you have to observe certain days, and you have to keep Sabbaths and all of that as a means of, of walking with the Lord. And Paul says, no, that is all shadow. If Al Pacino shoots at the shadow, he's dead, right? You've got to have the substance, and we have the substance in Jesus Christ, so don't go back to the shadow. It's become popular in the last few years for believers to return to what is called higher church experience. Essentially, it's robes and rituals from medieval times, and it seems more spiritual when in reality it's a distancing of ourselves from Jesus, diminishing him. Uh, you know, and, and so just be careful out there. This is happening, and the, one of the devil's strategies is to get you distracted and away from Jesus. Now, in verses 11 through 24, Jesus dispels the shadows. We've been saying that he is the substance. If it makes it any easier to understand, we can say that Jesus is the fulfillment of all things that prefigure him, the feasts, the foods, the holy days, etc. 
He therefore dispels anything that he has fulfilled. We are not to continue in them or return to them as if they would make us more spiritual. I throw that out there because I I don't know about you, but some illustrations or metaphors, I just don't get them. Did you ever have that problem with the Bible? I just don't. This idea of shadow and substance, it's not hard, but it's not the easiest thing to understand. And so God says, well, I've got a million metaphors for you. (laughs) Somewhere in the Bible, there's a metaphor you'll understand about what it means to walk with Jesus Christ that'll really grip you and say, oh, now I get it. Wow, that's fantastic. And today we just happen to be talking about shadow and spirit, or shadow and substance, rather. Verse 11, then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? The Jews is a term the Apostle John uses for the religious authorities. They put out a bolo for Jesus, be on the lookout, and they started pressuring the worships to be their CIs, their confidential informants, trying to find Jesus in the crowd. And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, he's good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. You are without doubt the worst pirate I have ever heard of, said Norrington. Captain Jack Sparrow replied, but you have heard of me. The name Jesus was on everyone's lips. Whether for good or for ill, they were judging him. If by judging him we mean evaluating his works, his miracles, that's great. Because he was going about proving he was the Messiah that was prophesied in the Old Testament. But that's not the kind of judging that was going on. This was more the religious leaders judging him for uh, breaking what they considered the Sabbath. Why did the Jews fail to see him for who he was? Lots of reasons, obviously, but for one thing, they were evaluating him by their first century politics. The Jesus they were looking for was a military man who would deliver Israel from Rome. They wanted to make Israel great again, if I can borrow a phrase. And so that's what they were looking for. They wanted a Moses who would do miracles and drown their enemy in some Red Sea. Is my Jesus the one I read about in the Bible? Or am I interpreting him through some strong bias that I have? All I need to know is that I do have strong biases and prejudices. Uh, Growing up, even in a Christian home, we all have biases and prejudices. And and the best we can do is know what they are and ask the Lord to reveal them. And then make sure that the Jesus that we're worshiping and that we're reading about is the one that is revealed in the Bible and not one of my own making. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Gestapo tactics have no place in the church. Maneuverings and manipulations, guilting and goading are not Christ-like. Don't succumb to them. Now, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught, and the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, having never studied? The Jews would later likewise marvel at the teaching of the apostles. Today, we'd say the apostles never went to seminary. God gifts his followers as he sees fit. He will often gift you in harmony with your natural abilities, but natural abilities must never be confused with an anointing from God, the Holy Spirit. And so if you want to be a worship leader, it's nice if you can play an instrument. That that seems to be sort of a prerequisite. But you have to be uh, concerned about natural talent because it can distract from the Lord, not just instruments, but oratorical talent, those kinds of things. And so if you're in a situation, if you're teaching the Bible and people start saying, man, that guy is so smart. I wish I could think of stuff like that. Man, he's just really smart, knows the Bible backwards and forwards. 
you might want to think about dumbing down your teaching so that people don't think you're so smart. Because if they think you're smart, they're not really hearing from the Holy Spirit. They're not waiting for that anointing. Nothing's really touching their heart. They have an idea that, you know, anybody can be that smart and all. And so we have to be careful. God gifts us according to our natural abilities. I mean, there aren't too many mute preachers, right? Uh, Charles Spurgeon used to say you had to have a, a big voice to be a preacher. Of course, they didn't have any uh, microphones in those days. And, and so you, you, can't, you can't be a mealy mouth guy like this because then nobody would hear the gospel and stuff. But don't, it's so easy to think that your talent or your ability are necessary for God to do his work. And just the opposite is true. You want him to increase while you decrease. Uh, you're just a voice crying out in the wilderness. Verse 16, Jesus answered them and said, my doctrine's not mine, but his who sent me. Doctrine's just a fancy word for teaching. Jesus' teaching came directly from God the Father. It was not his personal rabbinical opinion or interpretation. Uh, now, that would have been great, but it would, he said, God said this, and I'm telling you what God said. Teach verse by verse through the inspired word of God, and you can with some humility say, my doctrine is not mine, it came from the Father. Now, we still add spin to it. We have our interpretations. We have our way, you know, uh, I'm, that's what I'm doing this morning is trying to flesh it out a little bit. And, and, you know, I can be wrong, obviously. I was once in 1985. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. It was 86. But anyway, uh, uh, you know, you know uh, the idea is that at least if we're reading the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, that part of it is God's doctrine. He is speaking directly to you. And so you have a teacher perhaps who's gifted, and then your part is to be a good Berean, like it says in the book of Acts, and study it for yourself and say, okay, that I can see where Gene was going with that. I don't really agree with that. I don't have to agree with that. Uh, and, you know, but it's the word itself. It's God's doctrine. It's what he is teaching. Verse 17, if anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Is someone promoting himself in the ministry? Is someone behaving unrighteously? It isn't ministry, and it is actually dangerous. Don't be overly critical or overly skeptical, but be discerning and check things out. The prerequisites for recognizing and receiving the word of God is that you will to do his will. Simply put, you have predetermined to be a doer of God's word before you hear it. No matter what it says, you will obey it once you hear it. You realize you get saved and, and you're saved, right? But you don't know anything. You, know, you only know enough to get saved. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son for you that you shouldn't perish but have eternal life. Now you have to learn what it is you believe. And what the writer is getting at here, or what Jesus is saying here, is you have to bring a will to do God's will. No matter what the Bible says, that's what you are going to do. That's what you are enabled to do. Dr. Michael Spiegel writes, Obedience is the effect of sanctifying grace, not the cause of it. And so we're saved by grace, and then we, uh, the effect is that we can obey. If you are willing to do God's will, you can. 
His will is presented in his word and obedience enabled by God the Holy Spirit. This, this is one of maybe the greatest nugget of truth you can take away, you know, any time in a sermon. God's word is God's enabling. You can do what God asks you to do. The illustration I always use is that of parents and children. You just shouldn't ask your kids to do things they can't do. It's cruel. It's mean. And God doesn't do that. So if he's asking you to do something, as a great parent, you can do it. Nike's Just Do It ad slogan has been wildly successful. Ours could be, I read it and just do it. That'd be a great shirt, right? Maybe. Verse 19, did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Jesus can explain what he meant by none of you keeps the law, beginning in verse 21. Before he does, he wants to talk about the elephant in the temple. The authorities wanted him dead. People answered and said, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Is it woke to say to someone you have a demon if it's true? We can't say crazy or insane anymore, right? You can't say that people are crazy. You're crazy. That guy's crazy. I don't know what we're supposed to say, but anyway, so they said, you're demon-possessed. Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marvel. We deduce from verse 23 that the one work was the healing of the layman at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath day. These Jewish authorities never missed the opportunity to criticize. They would have loved blogging. Have you noticed how critical everyone is on the internet? The internet empowers the worst in people. Just before you start typing, just think about it for 24 hours. And you'll find that you don't really want to enter into that discussion because you start reading how crazy it gets. And so everybody's an expert on the internet. We had one time, uh, there was, uh, yeah, I, I think I can share this. Um, we were getting criticized on this Facebook page. And uh, one of the guys said, hey, do you want me to answer that? I go, how many followers? Three. Then no. <laughs> you know, I mean, we don't, it, all you do is you, you fuel people's anger. And so just, you know, these guys would have been all over the blogs talking about Jesus. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, meaning obviously Abraham circumcised and, uh, and they did way before the time of Moses. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Certain laws overrule others. Jesus offered the command for circumcision as the prime example. The child must be circumcised on the eighth day. When the eighth day fell on a Sabbath, the command to circumcise took priority. Normally you could argue that that's a work, shouldn't be performed on the Sabbath, but it was a higher priority because it was a sign of the covenant. And so it was the Jews who were not keeping the law by refusing to do good on the Sabbath. They wouldn't make a man whole on the Sabbath. And so Jesus says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Jesus only appeared to be violating the Sabbath. In fact, he was the one keeping it as it was intended, as I said, making people whole. We're told in the New Testament that Jesus comes in the volume of the book. One of the things that means is that he has dispelled all the shadows that you see in the Old Testament. Everything prefiguring him, pointing to him, metaphorical of him, illustrating him, 
is fulfilled in him. One of the problems that the writer of Hebrews was dealing with was Jews returning to Judaism to alleviate persecution. Living in the shadows was not the solution. They must embrace the substance and receive the empowering of grace sufficient to endure. Shadows are a danger to us all. The Apostle Paul described the tendency among believers, all of whom begin in the Spirit, to attempt to live the Christian life in the energy of their flesh. We retreat to the shadows of legalism or tradition or intellectualism or programs or methods. We trust in material resources rather than in spiritual resources. We must become convinced that we are complete in Jesus, having all we need for life and godly living. It is our uncertainty about this that makes the shadows so appealing. Somebody comes to you and they say, uh, you're not keeping the Sabbath, not keeping the Sabbath is the mark of the beast or something like that. And we have a tendency to worry about that, right? I mean, you, on the surface, you know it's not true, but you think, well, what if I'm missing something? What if they're right? And, and it's a, and they, might as well, they don't come out and say, come with me to the shadows. <laughs> you know, you have Jesus Christ. He sheds a light on everything. You have this great relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Come back to the shadows with me and let's talk about what you can eat on Saturday. It's insane, but it's dangerous. Listen to these trustworthy saints. A.W. Tozer writes, The Spirit-filled life is not a special deluxe edition of Christianity. It is part and parcel of the total plan of God for his people. Oswald Chambers writes, When it is a question of God's Almighty Spirit, never say, I can't. The Almighty Spirit, the Spirit-filled life, you have the first, therefore you can live the second. God's Almighty Spirit tabernacles in each believer. He tabernacles in our gathered church. If you are saved, he is in you, and he is among us right now, saved or not. Ask yourself, how would my life look if I was walking in the power of the Holy Spirit in what Christians like to call victory? Maybe you are, but I bet there's at least one small aspect of your life where you're not walking in victory. How would that look, and what has God told me, and why am I not doing it? Just do it. You are an overcomer. You don't become an overcomer. You start as an overcomer, and you need to maintain that position. 